Greetings. My name is Dr. Sekou Franklin, the president of the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. In this episode of The Freedom Plow, I interviewed Dr. Robert C. Smith, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at San Francisco State University, and one of the country's best minds on black politics. Dr. Smith has authored and co-authored a dozen books. His final book, which will be published next year, is called From the Bayou to the Bay. The book documents his life journey from rural Louisiana to the San Francisco Bay Area and acts as a guidebook for understanding the struggle over black studies on college campuses and the evolution of black politics from the 1970s to the 21st century. I uh, started out interested in black politics through my work as a student in the black studies movement in, uh, at Cal State Los Angeles and at uh, Cal Berkeley. I was very much engaged in establishing the black studies program at uh, Cal State LA. Okay. And then took... Uh, some of my first classes in black politics at Cal Berkeley with Don Davis. So that really begins the process of my interest in doing work as a scholar in black politics. Yeah. So were you, were you in L.A. during the um, flashpoints of the, of the um, I know it occurred, occurred at UCLA, but then the flashpoints of the, the Panther and Us? Uh, yes, yes. In fact, one of the reasons I transferred from... Uh, Cal State LA to Berkeley was because of that. I was beginning to, the conflict had come to Cal State LA between the Panthers and us, and I was on the losing side of that. Okay. Uh, the us people effectively took over the Black Student Union at Cal State LA and ousted those of us who were on the other side. Okay. And so that was one of the reasons that I left to come up here. Now you've 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 told me that story, but was it was it that volatile for you to leave? Uh, it was it was kind of touchy, particularly after the incident at UCLA. You began to feel a sense of, uh, you know, somewhat unease that uh, people might use, you know, physical force to have their way. And this was, of course, a struggle over who's going to control uh, our black studies. And uh, so they won the election. That is, the us faction won the election. And so that was a good reason to leave. Yeah. Now, um, I, I know your story. You're, you're one of our leading thinkers in, in black politics and in the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. Um, I've heard you describe your background as coming from a, a peasant society. <laughs> right. And so how does a, how does a person who emerges from um, that kind of background of, of, of Jim Crow and a peasant society um, make their way out to Louis, uh, Los Angeles? Well, uh, I uh, graduated in 65 from a little school, still segregated, in Benton, Louisiana, small town, near Shreveport, the big city. And uh, my sisters 
to Los Angeles earlier. And they said, come to California because you can go to college free, which is true. And so I, as soon as I graduated the next next day or the next couple of days, I moved to uh, L.A. Uh, to attend Los Angeles State College first because education, once you had a year's residence, was free. And, and so that was the, that was the family connection uh, that brought me to California. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know you go from um, Louisiana to Los Angeles to Cal Berkeley. And, right. and then for your undergraduate years in particular, and right. and then you transitioned to Howard University, if I'm not mistaken. No, no. UCLA? I spent, no, I spent yeah, two years at UCLA where I uh, got the master's. Got your master's. And, yeah. And then you transitioned to Howard University, if I'm not mistaken, correct? That's correct. That was, that was largely on the advice of my major advisor at at UCLA, who was Harris Scoble. Okay. And Harris Scoble was one of the few people, one of the few white scholars who was really interested in black politics. And he encouraged me to leave and come to, uh, and go to Howard because he was very much impressed with what Lon was doing at Howard at the time. And so he said, if you're really interested in black politics, you should go to Howard and study with Walters because you really can study it there. You can't study it here because you only had one class. Undergraduate class, that, which he taught, and that's Dr. Ron Walters that you're talking about, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, from that period of time of the 1970s, I believe, at this point in time, um, on up to uh, the 21st century, um, you have really a, a broad perspective of what we call African American politics or Black politics. And so, having said all that. How have things changed in terms of the landscape of African American politics from the time that you entered Howard University until 2019? Well, it's one thing, it's changed in a number of ways. One, when I started, it was incipient, it was just the beginning. Very few books, very few journal articles, uh, it, it was just at the start. And now, of course, it's fully institutionalized uh, across the country and, and white universities, black universities, in the journals, uh, both black and white scholars publishing the field. So it's, a, it's an established uh, uh, field in political science. And so that's, that's a major difference. Another difference is uh, they now call it not black politics. Hank Lawson spent a large part of his career trying to get the American Political Science Association to recognize black politics as one of the subfields in the discipline. And eventually they did. And that part is a result of his, of his pressuring them. And, uh, but now they call it race and ethnic politics. Mm-hmm. And so, even when I talk to young, young, young black political scientists, they call it REP, yeah. and that always gives me a little of a of a halt because it was always black politics. I understand why they made that change. I'm not particularly pleased with it, but I understand why they made it. So that's another change. It's not black politics now, but it's race and ethnic politics. And then uh, 
thing, I guess, is the is a lot of the young black scholars are a postmodernist. That is, they they work in that tradition, which of course I had never was never a part of my uh, graduate training. And that's completely new. Postmodernism is a completely new way of thinking about things. And I'm not that familiar with it. I've read a little bit of the postmodernist literature, but I'm not that familiar with it. So that's another, a lot of the young scholars are postmodernists rather than traditional social scientists in their approach to the study. And then the last thing is intersectionality, which is related to the race and ethnic politics thing. But the argument, again, by mainly young scholars, that you really should not focus exclusively, as we did, on black politics, but you have to have this intersectional approach, intersectional approach in terms of gender and sexuality. So those are the, the three kind of major changes. The institutionalization of the field of study is transition from black to race and ethnic, and then postmodernism and uh, intersectionality. That's what I. That's what I see. Since mm -hmm. I started, w would you say that before black politics was institutionalized, much of what we know about black politics was discussed through the lens of urban politics? No, I wouldn't say that. I would say that the initial interest in the discipline of political science in black, in black politics came about through an interest in urban politics, mainly because of the uh, riots. What, put, what helped to put uh, the study of black people on the agenda of political science were the rebellions of the 1960s. That's how Harry Scoble became interested in it. And so people who specialized in urban politics had a kind of leg up on uh, people who were in other fields. And so that for a time, there was that kind of nexus that you referred to. But I think there was a, a little bit of literature on black politics that was not urban prior to that time. A work by... Robert Martin and Howard and Harry Bailey and, um, of course, that bunch, uh, where, there was, where the focus was black politics, per se. In fact, Bunch's focus was more on national-level black politics, and he paid hardly any attention to, to urban. Yeah. Now, in 1996, you, your book, We Have No Leaders, was published and it was kind of a must read for, at the time at least, many, many black political scientists. And right. I want to go into, into that book uh, just a little bit. And, uh, but if you could explain the, the general argument of that book for the audience, um, please do that. Well, the title, We Have No Leaders, subtitle African Americans in the Post Civil Rights Era, uh, was. But the title came from a lecture that Harold Cruz gave at Purdue University when I was down there for a year teaching. I'll come back to that. But the book is uh, 
do my dissertation. I did my dissertation on the incorporation of blacks into the national political institutions. I looked at the Congressional Black Caucus and I looked at black interest groups in Washington and I looked at black presidential appointees. And I finished the dissertation in um, 75 and then began to have it published and I was unsuccessful. So I did several journal articles and then I uh, said I would take a look at what had happened 25 years later. I would, I would have a 25, from 25 years or so from the dissertation, I would take a look at what had occurred since I initially did that, that work. And so it is a study of the results of the consequence of the integration or incorporation of blacks into mainstream national politics. Again, focusing on black interest groups, the Congress, uh, and the presidency. And the argument is uh, that the result of that has been the co-optation of black leadership into routine system politics, uh, routines of American politics. And my argument is that is insufficient to bring about the kinds of changes necessary to fully integrate African Americans, particularly poor African Americans, into the society. And in order to do that, you need kind of large system change. It's, it's, uh, you need a kind of system challenge in politics. And when this process started, there was a system challenging movement uh, in the late 60s, early 70s to kind of put pressure on the established leadership to take somewhat radical positions on issues related to black people. The highest manifestation of that was at the National Black Political Convention at Gary, Indiana where they all came together and adopted a fairly radical agenda. And there was some, at least, radical system-challenging talk. But once the once that radical movement outside moved away, they became essentially, they, meaning the black leadership inside the system, became essentially routine mm -hmm. politicians. Uh, more interested, I think, in the trappings and the symbols of power rather than really trying to really exercise power on behalf of, again, I, I would emphasize poor black people. Okay. And the theme of the, the title of the book comes from this lecture that Cruz gave down at Prairie Views, but he was asked to evaluate black leaders, and he responded, we have no leaders, because these people who we think, think of as leaders have no, he said, program, strategy, or organization to advance the interests of black people. I thought that was true. And so I used that as the title of the book. Okay. Uh, let me offer a, a, a counter a counter to that and have you respond because I know some, some of the audience would maybe propose a, a counter that might be similar. Right. 
right. What would you say um, in terms of African American politics if if a, a, a consensus or a, a mobilizing structure that was successful got African American, got judges, for example, at the federal court level who would decide on issues that favored African Americans? Or what would you say from the standpoint of some institutionalists who might say, uh, well, well, interest group politics could help us get a, an EPA administrator um, in which, for example, under Obama, we had an African-American in that position um, who could change EPA uh, laws, uh, EPA regulations that could affect issues positively for African-Americans, such as clean water, clean air, and industrial pollution standards. Um, the counter argument might say that um, African-Americans can pressure institutions to make change in a substantive way for the most vulnerable African-Americans. Um, how would you respond to that particular argument in terms of the we have- No, I think there's, no, I think there's something to that argument. Uh, I, uh, I think there's something to that argument. The argument in We Have No Leaders uh, focuses on the need to make large-scale structural changes in order to incorporate what they call the black underclass, a term I don't like, but black poor people, into the mainstream of American society. And doing useful and... Uh, useful and, and things that advance black interests in terms of uh, heading the Environmental Protection Administration or the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, all the kind of bureaucratic and political positions that black leaders have held inside the system, chairing the Budget Committee in Congress, uh, the Judiciary Committee in the House, all those uh, uh, allow for incremental changes that are helpful to the black community as a whole. Uh, and that's the way the system works. The system is not organized uh, to bring about large-scale changes. So my criticism of the leadership inside the system for not advancing arguments for large-scale system change they would respond by saying that's not that's not the way that you must not understand how the American political system works. That's not the, the arena of institutional politics. Almost by definition, is not an arena to bring about the kinds of changes that I think are necessary if we are to end the oppression of black people as a whole. But particularly as that oppression is visited on uh, on low income black people. So. I, I, I say in the book that they have that they accomplished uh, some things that were were a value to black people, uh, but it's not enough. It, it's still not enough. If if you uh, if you look at the poor areas of Black America, uh, you still see terrible uh, conditions that flow from basically the lack of economic opportunity.
opportunity jobs and uh, employment and which from that the lack of jobs and employment from that flows all other kinds of problems crime and drugs and family dislocations and stuff like that in my assessment of your work over the last couple of decades is that that you would conclude um, and it probably call, cause uh, lead to some intense arguments among political scientists you would conclude that a a, a poor people's movement of primarily poor blacks, Native Americans, um, poor whites, and poor Latinos, that that kind of push on the system to produce the outcomes that you mentioned and, and we have no leaders is also equally challenging. Is that what your argument is as well? Yes. That that's, that's, uh, that was Martin Luther King's uh, agenda. Uh, he, in a sense, the book, We Have No Leaders, kind of, uh, picks up where King left off. That is, it makes the argument implicitly that King made that the kind of large scale change that he was interested in could not come about through King's system politics. That you had to have a mass movement, he said, of poor people of all colors to bring sustained pressure on the system, whether that system had blacks in it or not, because the system would only address those kinds of necessary changes if there was a mass movement that forced it to alter its priorities. And so that was his work at the end. He was forced murdered before he could see it through, but it's very unlikely if King had lived, that he would have been successful. Uh, because uh, I don't think he could have brought the kind of pressure uh, in Washington that led to the uh, civil rights legislation coming out of Birmingham and Selma. I don't think he could have did the same thing with the movement in Washington itself. Because he, he, he was working in Birmingham and Selma, he was using those places in order to bring pressure on Washington. In the Poor People's Campaign, he would have been in Washington trying to bring pressure on Washington, and I think they would have repressed it. And and, and it, 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 it happened. And I think that would have occurred even if he had lived. So that puts us on this horns of this dilemma. It's very, very difficult post-King to mount a mass movement to bring about large-scale systemic change in terms of changing the nature of the capitalist system. Very difficult to do that. And so the fallback position is to try to work through the normal processes of the system, knowing full well that they can only deliver incremental change. And that's where we have been at for the last... Uh, So if Democrats were to gain control of, of the Senate in 2020 and retain control of the House in 2020, and by, by January 2021, you would have 50 plus members of the Congressional Black Caucus. And if they were to invite you into a room and ask you for your advice about how to address the 
the material and social conditions of African Americans. Given your analysis, your research, and that we have no leaders assessment, what would you tell them? What, what advice would you give them? Well, actually, uh, all of my books have ended on rather pessimistic notes. Yes. Suggesting that there was very little that I could foresee or see that would make me optimistic about the prospects of okay. dealing with the problems of poor black people in particular, with poor people generally. But as a result of the last, uh, what, couple of years, particularly this year, I've become much more optimistic because of the leftward shift of the Democratic Party in the last couple of years, really since the election of Trump, where you have, I saw this is attributable to uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign, where he raised uh, socialism. Uh, first, really, first really credible socialist candidate in American history, uh, not counting, you know, devs and the Socialist Party candidates of the past who gained very little traction, he unexpectedly did. And so you began to see uh, fairly uh, widespread support inside the Democratic Party among young people, among liberals, for socialism, explicit, saying I embrace socialism. And you also begin to see inside the Democratic Party much more liberal attitudes on race among white liberals. You even have, uh, what is it, I guess it's a third of Democrats now say they support the idea of reparations. So there has been, and I think this in good part is a reaction to Trump, there has been a kind of movement of the Democratic Party to the left where the kinds of things that the candidates are talking about in terms of uh, health care and uh, full employment, uh, uh, free tuition. They're talking about a democratic socialist agenda, even if they don't call themselves socialists. So if the scenario that you painted, a democratic president, virtually any of them except Biden, a democratic president, Warren or Harris or Booker or Sanders, a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, the first thing I would advise them to do is to abolish the filibuster, okay. which would allow them to abolish the filibuster in the Senate, to uh, allow legislation to pass with a simple majority. They, could, they of course, could abolish the filibuster by majority vote. I would do that, and then I would enact the Democratic agenda. Uh, that they have been talking about, that they, that they are talking about in this campaign. And I would, I would enact, for example, some version of better care for all, universal health care. I would enact some kind of infrastructure program linked to full employment. Uh, I would enact the full, I would enact the uh, free tuition, I would enact the child care. So I'm, I'm much more optimistic about, if not this election, uh, in the future of seeing a system that is much more uh, 
inclined toward policies that would advance the uh, the interests of black people than I have been at any point uh, ever. But I think your main think your main point we have no leaders is you still need that that external extra systemic outside pressure to make that happen. Cool. Well, I'm not sure now. If if one of the one of the reasons the Democratic Party has shifted to the left is because of the centrality uh, of the black vote in the Democratic primary process. That is, it is, you cannot really win the nomination of the Democratic Party unless you get the support of African Americans. At least no one has won the Democratic nomination in recent years without the support of African Americans. And African Americans, although they are not articulate, that is one thing I would be critical of them now, looking back, is that why did it take a white man from a virtually all-white state to raise the banner of socialism when that should have been the work of the Congressional Black Caucus. That is, black people, more so than white people, support socialism. Black people would be advantaged by these socialist programs. Yet the Congressional Black Caucus has been un unwilling to use that word. Mm -hmm. Dr. King was willing to use it in the last year of his life when I interviewed them back in the 70s, many of them said they were closet socialists, that they were afraid to come out and express socialist ideas because they thought, you, they thought it would... you interview the Black Caucus? Yeah, when I interviewed members of the Black Caucus, they talked about closet socialism, uh, uh, socialist smuggling. But I think they should have been in the forefront picking up the legacy of King, talking about socialism and trying to give it some kind of legitimacy and respectability in the American political system. Whatever one thinks of uh, Sanders, Bernie Sanders, he certainly did that. And so I think it's possible in the scenario you painted that if you had Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate and they were willing to abolish the filibuster, they could enact a fairly comprehensive agenda, progressive agenda, liberal agenda, socialist agenda, that will include virtually everything of significance on the uh, on the black agenda. Interestingly enough, including reparations, you now have this, which is kind of unbelievable to me, you have credible, serious, possible democratic nominees embracing the idea of reparations, and you have about a third of the Democratic Party saying they support it, and another third saying they don't have an opinion. So, up in another way, uh, uh, only a third saying they don't support it. So, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's unexpected radicalism coming out of a mainstream American political party. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, some of the scholars um, that have been a subject of your, of your research, uh, primarily Haynes Walton, Ronald Walters, and Matt Jones. Um, you're probably okay. the only person who has compiled works from all three scholars or by all three scholars or, or written about them. And um, 
I have a specific question for, for Ronald Walters that relates to the We Have No Leaders book, and then I want to tie that together with the other two. But uh, Ronald Walters, I've, I've been revisiting this independent leverage strategy um, that Ronald Walters uh, um, wrote about. And what's your, what's your perspective of, of independent leverage strategy? Does it, is, it, is it a good approach, a good analysis? Well, I always had difficulty with it. Uh, explain because, it if you can, or I can explain it. Um, it's it's based uh-huh. on independent leverage strategy, the idea that Afro Americans could could perhaps develop a, a consensus uh, agenda or identify a consensus candidate, organize their indigenous resources um, in such a way in which they can leverage their their vote, their capacity, their power around that particular candidate um, in a way they can produce outcomes for African-Americans. What, what's your particular opinion about that approach? Well, in the, in the ultimate way you would exercise independent leverage as compared to dependent leverage, which Jesse Jackson mm-hmm. tried to exercise when he ran inside the Democratic Party. The ultimate way you would exercise independent le- leverage is if the Democratic Party was unwilling to embrace your agenda, at least enough aspects of it, you would actually run a third-party candidate in the general election, black progressive candidate, with the the objective of causing the Democrats to lose. Because the only way you could get them to really take you seriously was to demonstrate to them that if they did not take you seriously, they would lose the presidency. And he advocated that. He advocated Jesse Jackson running for as an independent. Uh, he advocated, if if not running for an independent, an organized boycott of the election with the aim of defeating the Democrats so the next time around they would take you seriously. Uh, and I... Uh, if 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 he, if, if he and say Jesse had attempted that, I would have supported it. But I, it, it would be a dicey strategy because the right wing Republicans would, of course, be the principal beneficiary of it, and whether or not that would bring the Democrats around to serious negotiations was unclear because they might see it as disadvantageous to embrace openly a quote black agenda for fear that they would lose uh, counterbalancing white support. So it was an audacious uh, strategy that he advanced, but mainstream black leaders, of course, would have nothing to do with it, not even Jesse Jackson. Well, that's, that's my assessment of that. Some would say that the the effect of the 84, I'm not saying I, I believe this, but that the effect of the 84 and 88 Jackson campaigns was essentially to do what you just described, which was to push whites out of the Democratic Party. And so... That is, that was the effect of not the independent, but the dependent leverage strategy that Jackson used. The effect of Jackson's campaign generally was to have 
some would say that uh, you know if, if that it you know if independent leverage was really exercised, Jesse Jackson would have ran as a third party candidate to punish Democrats so they could take blacks seriously. But some would argue then, as a counter to that, that the the effect that was essentially the effect of Jackson's campaign anyway, that it basically pushed whites out of the party. I think that's true to some extent okay. that he became that many whites believed incorrectly that Jackson was a dominant force inside the Democratic Party after the 84 and 88 campaigns, and that led to disaffection toward the uh, Republicans. Uh, but that might have been all to the good, because it simply made the Democratic Party a much more ideologically cohesive party. Okay. The persons that were left were really closet Republicans anyway. And so their departure made possible the kind of left Democratic Party that we think we're witnessing today. So, and that might have been the long-term consequence of of independent leverage, except you you have to take four or eight years of Republican rule in order to see the payoff. And two of the most established black leaders were not willing to do that. And I'm not sure if Jackson had ran as a third party candidate that he could have gained I doubt that he would gain I doubt that he would have gained the majority of the black vote. But he may have won enough to to cause the Democrats to lose. And I think a lot of black people would have uh, seen that as as not in our interest. Uh, speaking of Ronald Walters, uh, Ronald Walters, I believe, was the issues director for Jesse Jackson's campaigns, correct? That's correct, yeah. Okay. Um, and you've written about Ronald Walters, and you've written also about Haynes Walton, and you also compiled a book of, of Mac Jones, the work by Mac Jones. Um, these, are th- right. these are three um, first-tier African-American pol- pol- political scientists. So what is the difference between... Or what are what are the differences between those three scholars that that are important for our audience to know? No, I consider myself extremely lucky to have had an opportunity to work with those three brothers because I consider them to be the tallest cotton in the uh, black politics field, uh, and they were different in their approach to it, but they each made really. Uh, almost seminal contributions to black politics. Uh, Haynes was the, but that's it. Haynes consciously and systematically devoted a good part of his work to trying to get political science to recognize black politics as a subfield, and he knew that was based on having a body of literature that you could point to. So he did a lot of work, bibliographic work, uh, pulling together the literature of the field and putting it in some kind of coherent uh, structure so you could follow it and see its evolution from, I guess, from bunch through, through the work of younger scholars in the 70s and 80s and lobbying people in the uh, the discipline to to look at that body of work and establish the field, which he eventually was able to accomplish. 
And then he was he was clearly the most prolific scholar uh, ever. I mean, he wrote more books and articles on a whole range of of, uh, of topics. He, he was the he was uh, as I said, most prolific black power, most prolific black politics scholar to this date. And so. If you want to talk about black politics, at some point you're going to have to come across uh, the work of uh, Haynes Walton. And um, we wrote a textbook together, and the textbook was his idea. He said first we need a textbook that would codify the literature, and second, he developed these ideas of these things of universal freedom. The black press for their freedom actually helped to universalize freedom through what he called minority-majority coalitions. So he was uh, he was a seminal contributor. And then Walters was different. Walters was, Haynes, Haynes for example, disdained administrative work. He was offered several times positions as black studies directors and chairs. Okay. So he always said no because he didn't, he wanted to just do these, the scholarship. But Ron was an institution builder as well as a scholar. He and Mac both. He, Ron started off as chair of black studies, first chair of black studies at Brandeis, and then chair at Howard for a long period of time where he established the black politics field there. And then, of course, did scholarship, uh, books and articles. and But he also was a constant activist, that is, his his activism directed his scholarship. That is, his, if you read his material, his books and articles, much of it comes out of his activist work. But he's he's out there in the in the in the, in the arena, uh, actively working for the National Black Political Convention or Jesse Jackson or Trans Africa or whatever. And then he comes back to his study and reflects on that and then writes about it. So activism and form scholarship, and almost a unique blend, and people make the comparison with Du Bois. That is probably a stretch because Du Bois is in a class by himself, but Walter certainly uh, tried to approximate Du Bois. Du Bois was his hero. And he was Du Bois in, in his sense that you had to have this blend of scholarship and activism. And he was an institution builder in the sense that he chaired the department at Howard and developed the Institute for Study of Black Leadership at the University of Maryland. Um, and then Mac did the same thing. I mean, Mac and Ron, in a sense, are twins because when Mac was, when Ron was chairing political science at Howard, uh, Mac was chairing political science at our university. In fact, he was organizing the PhD program in, in, black, in, in political science at Atlanta. And interestingly, Atlanta did not have a black politics field because it was Mac's idea okay. that all the fields of political science, comparative theory, <coughs> should be taught from a black perspective. And so he tried to, in Atlanta, bring 
blackness into the discipline as a whole. That was that was a, a unique contribution, and for a while, a quite successful one in terms of training people in American politics from a black perspective, international relations, to look at that material from a black perspective. So that was one of his contributions to to uh, to black politics. And then, of course, as you know, he was the founding uh, president of NCOPS, and one of the one of the persons who, almost from the beginning, said there has to be a separate, distinct, autonomous black organization, that we should not be a corpus, a, a subsidiary of the American Political Science Association, but we should go a separate, distinct, and independent way in order to develop a politics, a black politics that would, that was conducive to liberation of black people. That was the term that we used at that time. So those are those are institution building. And then he was one of the few, in some ways the only black political scientists, to pay systematic attention to questions of theory and epistemology. Um, this idea of a distinctive black way of knowing that distinguished the black study of politics from the white or mainstream study. Mm-hmm. And by black, he did not necessarily mean skin color black, but people who were willing to look at issues and problems and methods from the perspective of does this contribute to the liberation of black people, of what he called a system challenging versus a system maintenance political science. And he wrote a series of epistemological papers, methodological papers, trying to hone, uh, make clear that epistemological, that this epistemological question was a kind of first question to ask if one was going to study black politics scientifically. And his paper, A Frame of Reference for Black Politics, which he gave at the first meeting of NCOPS in 1969, and which Daniel Neil Henderson published in his volume a couple of years later, his edited volume on black politics, that paper has been the, my theoretical guide in all of my work in black politics. When I read it, I guess I must have been at Berkeley or at UCLA. When I first read it, I was very much influenced by it. This notion that black politics was, like any politics, about power, a power struggle between blacks and whites, where whites monopolize power, both force and size and authority and violence, and they used that monopoly on power to subordinate black people, and that black people needed to organize in such a way as to end that subordination by acquiring power. And that this racism, this this racial subordination of blacks, this power struggle between blacks and whites, where blacks seeking liberation, whites seeking to maintain this dominance, could only be understood if you added this third variable, which is that Whites justified their domination of blacks on the basis of the ideology that we were an inferior people. 
those that argument, those three theoretical anchors or legs, uh, have been the guide to my work ever since. I've spent most of my time in one way or another examining this power struggle, this effort of blacks to acquire power, and this ideology of white supremacy and racism. Yes. So that is that is his contribution, epistemological, theoretical, in addition to his institution building as the first head of NCOPES and as the first head of the Atlanta PhD program. Yes. Mac Jones, his Mac work Jones. was the first work I ever assigned to a black politics class that I, I taught. So, um, but uh, just real quick about Ron Walters, um, his 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 work on Pan Africanism. Can you touch upon that? Yeah, he he started out, of course, uh, as an African scholar, as he specialized in African politics, and he came, and then he he was diverted into black studies at at Dundas, and then at Howard into black politics. And so when people think of his work, they usually forget about the Pan-African part of it. But as uh, one of his students, Karen Stanford, makes clear that was Pan-Africanism was from the beginning to the end of, uh, of his work. His first published work called The Blacks, which was published in Reader's Digest of all places, which he won a prize for that was a Pan-African essay on the relationship between the blacks, the blacks of the continent and blacks of the diaspora. And that was a theme that he carried through virtually till the end of his life, because at the end of his life, he was he was working on reparations. But he was talking about reparations not just due to African-Americans for the enslavement and oppression here, but reparations due to the whole of the African people for the Europeans' exploitation of the whole continent. And so he was very, for example, critical of Nelson Mandela for not being more forthright in challenging the uh, the structure, economic structure of apartheid, the political structure Mandela and his colleagues dismantled. But they left intact the economic domination, and Ron thought that was that was uh, could not lead to the liberation of the South African black people. And so his work, uh, his work on uh, Pan Africanism, was a thread that ran from his days as an undergraduate student right to the end. He wrote a number of piece articles on it, and of course, one of his major books is is on Pan Africanism, or specifically on the linkage between African peoples, wherever they are bound, in relationship to white people, because he thought that was the basis of the of Pan Africanism, what we all suffered from, whether it was in London or Havana or Lagos, Nigeria, we all suffered from this structure of white supremacy and domination, and that gave a kind of common, a kind of common uh, basis for the struggle. Okay. So, as as you reflect on, you you have more than forty years 
um, experience in political science and as and you're writing your memoirs now, or at least you're finishing them up. So what, what is it about your, um, your work that is going to be in the memoirs that we don't know? What is it about you or your work that we don't know that you think may surprise some, some of us who known you for quite some time? Well, uh, there's some, I, I tell, when I left, I, when I left Berkeley, as long as I finished undergraduate work there, the only, I left with two objectives. One, I wanted to become a nationally recognized scholar of black politics. And I wanted that scholarship to contribute what I, to what I call the liberation of black people. I think I achieved the first objective. The second, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Uh, that is, I think I became a nationally recognized scholar of black politics. Whether that scholarship contributed to the liberation of black people, I is, I'm still musing about. But there were a lot of difficulties in that process, downs as well as ups. I would not, in all likelihood, have been graduated from Berkeley, except for the Nixon invasion of Cambodia. Hmm. Uh, wow. The Nixon invasion, I, I had one class left in order to be graduated, and that was French 4. And I was not, I could not pass French 4. And so I stopped going to class, and I just, I don't know what, what would have, I guess I would have petitioned the university to allow me to graduate without passing that required course. Then Nixon invaded Cambodia, and that led to a massive crisis on campus. The National Guard was brought in, and then the killings at Kent State so frightened the administration that they closed the campus and graduated everybody scheduled to be graduated. And so they, they closed the campus in April, and I was graduated without having to pass French Four. If that had not occurred, I don't know what would have happened. I could have, my career could have ended right there. That was luck. Similarly with uh, uh, Vietnam, I was, I had a low number, and I would have been drafted as soon as I graduated from Berkeley. Well, I wasn't going to Vietnam, I was going to jail, but that was possible. And then driving down from Berkeley to Los Angeles, I was arrested for possession of marijuana. Okay. Possession of marijuana was then a felony. The army did not induct felons. So I escaped going to Vietnam or going to jail because of that. <laughs> Again, that was luck. That was, if I had known that, I would have deliberately went to the police and smoked the joint and got arrested so I didn't have to go to Vietnam, but I didn't know that was the case. At UCLA, I, uh, UCLA had a system where when you admitted to the graduate program, you admitted conditionally. You would get a master's, and then they would judge on the basis of the master's whether or not you were qualified to go on 
to get the PhD. And initially, when I took the master's exam at UCLA, they said I was not qualified to go on to get the PhD. And then two or three weeks later, they changed and said, yes, I was qualified. I think that was purely because I was black. That is, the examination was red blind. And so when the professors read it, they didn't know whose exam was whose. And then when they found out that they had disqualified for the PhD, the only black person in the program, I think Harry Scoble, my major advisor, went to them and said, you can't do this, and persuaded them to change their mind and allow me to go forward for the PhD. Of course, I didn't do it because I went to Howard, but that's another, another piece of luck. Same thing in Howard. At Howard, at the time I was there, they had four, they had to pass four fields, qualify, take qualifying exams in four fields for the PhD. And uh, I took American public administration, black politics, and methodology. Between Berkeley and Howard, I had taken nine courses in methodology. I wasn't that particularly good at it, but I thought at least I was good enough to pass the exam. But I, I failed the exam. Okay. And so, another piece of luck, the rules for the exams then, I guess still now, is that no person could evaluate a PhD candidate's exam unless he himself had the PhD. And the person, one of the persons who failed me on my methodology exam did not have a PhD. It's Filipino brother, Victor Ferraris. And so that technical, I use that as a technicality, Bill Ellison, I use that as a technicality to have another person placed on the committee to read my exam, and that person passed me. Wow. Again, another piece of luck. And so I mentioned those instances of, I didn't, it was not a straight line. Mm -hmm. There was, uh, there was uh, a series of lucky breaks that allowed me uh, to graduate from UC Berkeley, to avoid the war in Vietnam, to be advanced to PhD pro candidates at UCLA, and at Howard. There were there were lucky breaks. Uh, that that I, I point those out in the manuscript just to show that this was not a straight line from the bio to becoming a top ranked black scholar of of black politics. Uh, so and some of the um, I, some of the younger scholars may may not know that that your wife is also been right there by your side in terms of assisting your research, correct? Oh, yes. That was, it's indispensable. I, I, uh, this, the manuscript that I'm doing now is the first one that I've typed myself. Uh, not typed, but word processed. Uh, because I had the time and the leisure to do it. And so 90% of this manuscript would, would be my doing. But she had, uh, from my dissertation to every other book, she has been not only my typist, but my editor and agent and everything else. She has been uh, the indispensable person and allowing me to do the amount of work that I've done because I didn't have to 
hire a typist. I didn't have to do the typing. Unlike Haynes, for example, Haynes had to hire a typist and, and go through that expense and then go through a series of editing as they, as they exchange drafts. Uh, one of the reasons there's so many difficulties, typological difficulties in his Invisible Politics book is because the wrong copy of the book went to the editor, the un, the, not the final edited copy, but the, a, that, the, a draft that was, should have been buzzed by it, but the wrong copy was sent. So, Scotty, I could have, Scotty, I avoided all of that. She, she did everything from the time of my dissertation until, I say until this book, and she also, she also did research, uh, uh, particularly early on, and did editing, and did the shaping of ideas. Uh, uh, so that has been. Would you argue that uh, your work has been a co-production? Yes, I would and say that. You and your wife. Without her, yes, without her, without her, uh, they could not have been done. Uh, uh, but anyway, without her, maybe two or three rather than a dozen could have been done. So, um, my last question to you is, given all, all of your experiences and research, are you, are you optimistic? Are you, are you more pessimistic now than you were when you left Howard more than 40 years ago about the state of black politics? No, well, um, the state of this, the state of the study of black politics, I think, is robust. I am very, very pleased about your generation and, uh, and the generation after you in terms of the work of young black political scientists. I think they're much better, much better, and more broadly educated than I was, and whether it's postmodernism and that body of work, or whether it's quantitative methods, I think they, I think they, are, I think they are, I think they are an excellent cohort of post sixties young black political scientists in terms of their the work they're doing. And for the most part, their commitment in that work to the liberation of black people. That's, that's, uh, so that's, I'm, I'm, that's, that's a course, that's a source of, uh, optimism. The, that, that the work that Mac Jones and those people started out trying to advance has in effect been institutionalized not only in NCOPs, but even those black political scientists who don't attend NCOPs are not associated with NCOPs, nevertheless do by and large NCOPs type work. Uh, so I'm optimistic and happy about that. And then I must say until, for two things, I, I talk about in the manuscript that Nothing more depressed me uh, as an observer of American politics than the election of Donald Trump. I found it inexplicable that that many people would vote for him and make him president. The 
see him as I saw him as a buffoon. And you made that assessment. You also are a, a scholar of presidential politics, so you made that assessment also as a scholar of presidential politics. Yes, that this is not going to happen. That, um, and then he's the first president since Wilson to openly express racist, white supremacist sentiments. So that was distressing and a cause of pessimism, which is, which is, is which I still have every time I turn on the TV and see that he's president. I grew up, my first, the first president I was aware of consciously was John Kennedy. And Kennedy, of course, had a lot of problems, but he was, uh, he was the anti-Trump. He was an intelligent, a rhetorically gifted, reform-minded president. Uh, and then to end up with somebody like Trump at the end of your life is kind of, <laughs> uh, it's just depressing, I really. <laughs> but there's one source of optimism in that. By the way, the evidence indicates that, that, that Trump was elected by people who were racist, that is what they call racially resentful voters. Yeah. Uh, what's his name down at uh, Emory? Uh, Alan Alvarez. Alan in his book shows that that was a disproportionate source of his supporters. People who who thought he would make America great again by making America white again, and so that was. But that is now counterbalanced by observing the contemporary Democratic Party. In this nominating process, where the party has clearly moved since Obama left office in a much more left, progressive, racially egalitarian way, so that not just Joe Biden, but Barack Obama would have difficulty competing if he held the same views he held when he left office. That is not Obama's party, it's much more Bernie Sanders' party, a much more liberal, a much more racially progressive party. And so, going back to our previous conversation, that gives me a source of optimism if this, if what I see now is actually a trend or a pattern, that you may have a, a fairly cohesive left-wing party in the American two-party system up against a fairly cohesive right-wing Republican party. And you can't predict the outcome of this. And I think this will, I will certainly be dead before the outcome is known. But uh, which one of those views will prevail? The Trumpian Republicans are the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren uh, Democrats. They're about evenly balanced now. And so this contest for America's future will go on for some time before it's resolved. Resolved in the sense of one party clearly winning the majority. But that's, that's not, that makes me optimistic. Even in the face of uh, Trump. Well, we greatly appreciate your insight, Dr. Smith, your perspective and your wisdom. And uh, thank you for joining us on this podcast.
and I appreciate you asking me. And I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Okay. We want to thank Dr. Robert C. Smith for joining us on this episode of the Freedom Plow podcast, hosted by the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. You can find the Freedom Plow on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, and other distribution links. For more information about the National Conference of Black Political Scientists, you can find us at www.ncopes.org. That is www.ncobps.org.